So we're deep in the heart of this retreat now, and most of us are settling more and more fully into the silence, the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down that I mentioned the other night as supporting this profound stillness, the kind of stillness that the most transformative insights emerge from. So in support of that stillness, I'd like to suggest uh, this morning, if you have any questions about the instructions or the meta practice, which is what we'll be doing soon, that you hold those till the end, and then I'll just stay back for a few minutes and we can check in, and then the rest of you can uh, leave and continue with the silence. So the stillness that we're deepening into It uh, rests on a couple of mental factors, one being seclusion and the other being samadhi, usually translated as concentration. And being on retreat, especially in a place as supportive as Temuata with its beautiful natural environment, we have a very powerful opportunity to develop this quality of mental seclusion to temporarily put aside our involvement with the world out there and to be fully, completely here, here in this moment, in this body, fully with ourselves in the silence. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, this mental seclusion is described as being free from desires and discontents in regard to the world. And this is such an important part of the practice that it's repeated all through the Satipatthana Sutta as a kind of refrain that weaves all of the passages together. So I'd like to read you just one example of that from the beginning of the Sutta where it's giving an overview of all four establishments of mindfulness. It says, here, practitioners, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feeling tones, one abides contemplating feeling tones, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. And this freedom from desires and discontent in regard to the world comes from being willing to temporarily put aside our usual preoccupations. So we try to let go of worrying about work or money or our health or our relationships our parents, our grandkids, our, or about politics or the state of the world. And this putting aside is not escapism or self-indulgence, 
because I'm pretty sure those things are going to come back soon enough. But as the mind becomes more still, we start to experience very directly just how agitating those desires and discontents are. And being able to put them aside, even temporarily, gives our nervous system a deep rest. And then from that state of rest, of ease, of sukha, transformative insights can arise. So that when we do return to the world and we do start to re-engage with all of life's challenges, we're in a much better place to navigate those challenges skillfully. So this mental seclusion works together with samadhi, with concentration, to create the right conditions for insights to arise. And this word samadhi refers to the mind that is completely, completely undistracted, completely absorbed in whatever it's paying attention to, unmoving and still. And because of that stability and stillness, it has great power. So as a metaphor, we can think of what happens when we take a magnifying glass out into the sun and we shine the sunlight through the magnifying glass onto a piece of paper. Did any of you do that in high school? They probably don't do that anymore. It's all digital. But when we take the rays of the sun and concentrate them through the magnifying glass, the paper can actually catch fire. And in some ways, that's uh, what we're doing with our minds. We're not hopefully setting fire to things, but we're, maybe you could say, we're setting fire to the defilements. We're using the magnifying power of the mind to really uh, release what's not useful and to see through our delusions. So this word samadhi is usually translated as concentration, but I try to avoid that word because in English, the word concentration has connotations of forcing, of fixating, of focusing very tightly. And if we approach samadhi like that, we're likely just to give ourselves a giant headache. Because true samadhi comes out of letting go, of relaxing, of letting go of whatever is not the object that we're paying attention to. Until eventually the object completely fills the mind and there's no room in the mind for anything else. So there are various objects that we can use to develop this samadhi. The breath is one very common one. Some of you are familiar with Anapanasati practice. In some traditions they use reciting of mantras and in this uh, Western insight tradition What's most commonly used is the Brahma-Vihara practices that I uh, introduced last night. So the way these practices are traditionally taught through reciting phrases, they act, to, they act as a concentration practice because we keep letting go of anything that's not metta, for example. We just keep coming back to the phrases, to the person we're offering the phrases to, and any feeling of metta that may be developing in the heart, the mind. 
And the bonus of using metta as an object of concentration is that even if we don't get into deep states of absorption, we still have the benefits of cultivating those skillful mind states. So it's kind of a two-for-one practice. And this morning I'm going to be offering a guided metta meditation. But first, just a few words about the actual practice. The word metta, some of you may be familiar, is often translated as loving-kindness. But in English, that word, at least to me, sounds sort of wishy-washy and a little bit sentimental. And the loving part can be uh, a little bit distracting because in English, the word love has such a huge range of different meanings. So... At one end of the range, we talk about loving ice cream, for example. Well, that's not the kind of love that we're cultivating with metta. We also have this um, sort of romantic love that we what we see in movies, that's, uh, in popular music and so on. And that kind of love is very passionate. It's very dramatic. It's very unstable often. It's very exclusive. And again, that's almost the opposite of the kind of love that metta is pointing to. Because true metta is grounded in goodwill and friendliness, benevolence, and ultimately it's offered to all beings everywhere. So it's totally non-exclusive. So I prefer to translate metta as just kindness or goodwill to keep it simple and accessible. So in some suttas, metta is translated as non-ill will. So hopefully we can start at least with non-ill will. It's not about developing some kind of oceanic bliss state. Just simple kindness is enough. So when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was asked, what is your religion? Apparently he said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. So I think that's a beautiful understanding and easy to say, not so easy to fully live that which is why I appreciate that these practices are practices. They help develop the heart and the mind in that way. And I think I mentioned briefly last night how they also help protect us from the hindrances, from the visiting defilements. So in this sense of the Brahma-Viharas of being immeasurable or boundless, we can get a sense of how when they're fully practiced, they sort of smooth us out. I gave the example last night of the opposite of that, when my mind was like barbed wire. And you can see from that image, or perhaps feel, that when we have barbed wire mind, everything sticks to it. Everything gets caught in it. Everything gets tangled up. The opposite with the Brahma-Viharas, when that barbed wire is smoothed out, the heart and the mind become supple and pliant and smooth and they flow like water so nothing sticks and these visiting negative energies just can't get a hold on us. 
So we're going to be practicing using the traditional method of reciting phrases. And the phrases are intended to help us connect with the quality of kindness. So they're the phrases I'll be using today are may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you know peace. And this is one particular set of phrases. Once you get familiar with this practice, it's fine to develop your own that are in that same terrain, so long as you keep them consistent for all the different categories of people that you're working with. And in this gradual training of the Brahmaviharas, we generally uh, we start with where it comes most easily and naturally. And then we gradually strengthen that meta muscle until we can include more and more types of people. So we progress from easy to somewhat neutral to slightly more challenging to difficult people and then eventually to all beings everywhere. So one image that's used for this is like a, a waterfall cascading over a series of pools the water falls into the top pool and fills the top pool. And when that top pool is naturally filled, it flows down to the next pool, the category of... So we go from what's traditionally known as... Well, usually we start with ourselves, but as I said last night, for many of us, that's not such an easy place to start. So today I'm going to be starting with the benefactor, And then we'll move on to a good friend, a neutral person, difficult person, and so on. So this quality, this category of the benefactor, benefactor traditionally means somebody who's supported you, who's um, helped you in some way, perhaps been a mentor. It could be a high school teacher or a kindly aunt or uncle or a grandparent. If you don't feel to have someone like that in your life, then just choose somebody, some being, not even necessarily a human being, that when you think of them, there's a natural flicker of warmth or a natural sense of smile, gratitude, appreciation. So it doesn't have to be a human being. It could be a pet, a dog or a cat could even be a bird that visits your back garden regularly. doesn't matter who or what this benefactor is, so much as that when you think of them, there is this natural flicker of warmth or appreciation. And having said that, this one of the things that gets in the way often of metta practice is a sense that we're supposed to be coming up with some kind of emotion and trying to manufacture some kind of feeling. If often what happens is if we try to go after emotions, they get stage fright and disappear. At least that's my experience. Or some rebellious toddler goes, no, I'm not going to feel meta. So don't worry about trying to get the emotion. It's the intention in this practice that's most important. 
So even if we sat here for 45 minutes reciting these phrases and they felt utterly dry and mechanical, trust me, that is still time well that is still time well spent. So, ready to give it a go?